New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And Zach, before we get into today's topic, uh, into today's topic, I wish I could speak English today, but I, I guess I can't. I forgot how to use correct grammar. Uh, must be all the audio issues we've been having uh, trying to record <laughs> this episode. Um, but before we get into all that, what have you been? Uh, what have you been up to? What What have you been drinking? What have you been getting into? That's a really good question. How do you live? Yeah, you know, uh, pretty good, pretty good. You know, it's uh, it's it's hard to look at the uh, the temperature outside in uh, lots of parts of the country and feel like uh, like I'm I'm fortunate in terms of uh, not being not freezing to death here in Seattle. It's just cool, you know, typical winter weather. Um, but what I, what have I been into? Well, you know, I mean, I got to be honest. Uh, I'm not always inspired uh, or not always driven by what we talk about on the podcast to go then drink it. But I have really been seeking out my tiki cocktails after our podcast last week you're such um, a kiss ass dude like i know i'm serious i'm just learning I'm... so much about you via audio like first <laughs> of all like you're kind of into green tea and then also like now you're just like kissing a little ass it's fine like i didn't come on you didn't you're not getting in a tiki one week after the tiki podcast so i didn't I say like i've like never had a tiki cocktail before i'm just saying like you know when you're when you're sitting there at the bar and and i i will admit haven't been to a tiki specific bar since, but when you're sitting there at the bar and there's the one or two kind of tiki inspired cocktails on the list and you're like, ah, you know, we had a wow. nice conversation about that and those look delicious. We, so yeah, that's kind of been where I've been, where I've been. Can we talk about um, something else that's more important than the tiki cocktails you've been drinking? Sure. And that is how fucking awesome is Brian's voice? I Brian, know, right? ha- dude, I would let him read me asleep to go to bed. I mean, a story to go to bed every night. That guy had the most soothing voice. I just want to go to the Polynesian and just let him talk to me. Like he, his voice was so good. Totally like built for radio. Yeah. Like we're, so you've given me a great idea, like, <laughs> which, which is, which is that I have a, so I have a seven and a half month old at home and I'm just going to go in and take the raw audio file from, uh, Brian's portion of the podcast last week, cut it all together and just play that for my son as he goes to bed. He won't care what we're talking about, but he'll, no. yeah, you're right. That'll soothe him. I mean, it's not that hard to put him to bed, but it would definitely help. His voice was so good. He was super hilarious too. I loved having him on. Yeah. Um, in other words, in what you're, <laughs> I mean, is what you're trying to say that he uh, made both of us kind of look like amateurs? I mean, not amateurs, but his voice was way better. It was really <laughs> cool. Just I mean, like, Adam, yeah. if you want, I can turn the bass down on your voice more when I when I edit this. If you want to, if you want to, if you want to get into Brian Miller territory, there's actually I would a love setting to get into Brian Miller believe. territory, man. I would let that dude. I would hang out with that dude all the time. I want to. I want to go hang out with the Polynesian and just like drink all his drinks. Well, I still don't totally believe you that you went home after recording that podcast instead of following him to the bar. But uh, I did go. If, home. if the answer, I, wish I would have followed him to the bar. Though. <laughs> if the answer isn't tiki, then what have you been drinking lately? I mean, honestly, uh, this weekend, so uh, we did an open call for Chianti here in the office for reviews. So like every month, you know, uh, our tastings editor, Keith, as you know, uh, emails out to like all the producers, you know, we're tasting these things in the next month. So one of the things was Chianti and we actually like had this Chianti Classico that you actually can't find in the US, which really sucks. It was just killer last Friday. I mean, it was like an amazing bottle of wine. Uh, so, so I, wait, wait, I, wait. So, me drinking green tea is 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 too pretentious for you. But the bottle of Chianti Classico that literally you can none of the people. Dude, I can't help it that the producer fucking submits it, <laughs> even though we say submit to, if you only for sale in the U.S. and we still open it. It's not my problem. Uh, like I'm not being a stop. Okay. I was like, ooh, I found this bottle, and I like I went to their own little wine cellar and I bought it for you know, 50 euros and I brought it back. No, they oh, so you're it. saying I shouldn't talk about the wines I bring back from Europe when I'm there. Okay, fine. 
No, you can't. Only I can. <laughs> but also, that's that's why my title CEO. But that's true. Also, uh, I've been basically out of necessity. I've been making so I have like some sweet vermouth uh, in the in the fridge I got when I was in Spain, um, and I wanted to open it. And I was like, well, out of necessity, like what cocktails can I make? And I don't have Campari right now, but I have gin and I have Chinar. So I've been making some oh, like Chinar okay. Negroni. Um, because Naomi, my wife has been like wanting a cocktail at the end of the evening, which totally deserved. And that's basically all I can make right now. I mean, I could make <laughs> Manhattans, but I've not been really feeling the Manhattan. I, I like a good Manhattan, but like, I don't know that. I know that they're equally as boozy, the Chinar Negroni and the Manhattan, right? Like it's just, they're both all booze drinks. Yeah. But for some reason, the Manhattan seems boozier and like basically, I don't know, more like old if that makes sense. Like yeah. I'm just like supposed to be in a smoky bar, like down in my Manhattan. Then maybe I'm gonna go for a steak dinner later. Whereas the Chino Negroni is like, so like, okay, cool. Like we had one, now maybe a glass of wine with dinner and all good. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I Look, I've been there many times. My wife often is like, make me a drink. Um, although to be fair, my wife's favorite drink is a Manhattan. So it basically goes in that general direction anyhow. But uh, yeah, no, that sounds <laughs> delicious. And, and Chino is a great ingredient. You know, it's a little, it's like not quite maybe as 100% versatile as, as Campari or Aperol could be, but it definitely, you know, can fit in a lot of the same spots. And, um, you know, maybe next time you got to make one of those uh, Boulevardiers you were talking about last week, uh, but with Chinar oh. instead of Campari. So Yeah, maybe I will, and I'll make it there. with bourbon, as Brian Miller also <laughs> confirmed, is the official way to make the Boulevardier. Blow okay, it we up! Gotta, we got we got to stop referencing last week's podcast and get on to this week's topic. No, man. And, uh, no, it's cool. It's just, it, look, a little witty banter at the beginning of the show didn't hurt anybody. <laughs> no, I'm all about it. I'm all about <laughs> it. Uh, but uh, but we do have a topic to get to and, uh, well, and a guest I mean, to get to. It's a great topic because it's really cold out here. And so all I can think about, as I'm sure all you can think about, is the next vacation. Um, you know, I, I, I basically, I, my wife and I have this new rule that you can't go on a vacation unless you've already planned what the next vacation is going to be. So like the day before you go on your vacation, you need to at least have a list of like where you want to go next. Cause I feel like that at least helps you when you come home. Right. Cause you're not like, Mm -hmm. Oh, like we're home and now kind of like life sucks for the next six months while we, you know, go back to work and whatever. We're already excited about potentially going to one or, you know, one or three of another other destinations. We may not have booked anything. Like, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Like, you know, I'm not like rolling in the dough here, but we at least have already talked about where we'd like to go next. And so I, I think talking about travel destinations is one of the um, most fun things one can do. Uh, you know, as you know, for us millennials, wanderlust is, is a key thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why, like, the list of our, our top 10 uh, destinations for people who love wine and travel for 2019 or any year, but this year as well, is super fun to put together every year. It's, like, one of the those lists that we all like to debate in, in the in the staff meetings uh, when we talk about where we're going to travel to and why. We always look for cool news hooks. So that's actually what we're going to tra- talk about today is that list that we created and published a few weeks ago. And I brought on uh, wine staff writer Tim McCurdy, who was basically spearheaded that list, uh, also was pretty instrumental in in the rankings of the of this year's list. So I think you know we're gonna have to ask him to defend some of his choices. <laughs> but that's what we're gonna chat about today. What, what you read the list, Zach? What do you think? Uh, it's definitely I, looking at it, reading it, and, and appreciating it. Uh, I have some new places to consider for uh, for wine destinations myself. But Tim, I wanted to first say like. 
I hope you get to do more than just write lists because I feel like last time we had you on, we were talking about the top 50 wines and we got top 10 wine destinations. I do know you occasionally just flat out write about wine. That's true. I mean, I'm not only writing listicles here for VinePair, but that does make up sort of part of my work. But I enjoy that too. You know, people love a list. You cannot, you know, you, okay, you cannot characterize the top 10 destinations of 2019 for wine travel as a fucking listicle it is a it is a banner piece of editorial content this is a tent pole piece of content for the year a listicle would be like the seven best maraschino cherries for a manhattan tasted and ranked this is literally like <laughs> lots of research went into this piece of content it's a full-grown list it's not a listicle let's be clear Yes, thank you. But yes, it is a list, but it's a list in the same package of what is it? Is it 52 places that the Times comes up with every year or yeah, 50 something whatever? Like that. So same, same kind of idea. We just, you know, keep ours focused on wine for this list and then obviously beer destinations for the other one we publish every year. Um, but yeah, I mean, Tim does do more than that. Okay. He's a very talented writer. <laughs> I don't want, uh, us to, you know, characterize him as only the person that does the list, Zach. So Tim, I want to ask you an important question about this list first and foremost, which is, um, I'm sh- I I actually I hope the answer is that you have been to every last one of these places, but I'm maybe guessing not. Is there anywhere on the list, and and it doesn't have to necessarily be number one or wherever that you're like, in putting this list together, you were you know sort of following Adam's dictum of like I have to go there. Where on this list most calls out to you as a as a place to visit? Well, I mean, Zach, that would have to be number one on the list, of course. I guess that makes sense. Um, but. You're very much correct in assuming that um, my passport is well-worn. I've traveled a lot myself. I've been to many of these places and um, not for compiling these lists, but in my life. And obviously, yeah, the place that you should be going to out of this list is the Sherry Triangle, the number one destination in this year's list. Okay, so what if you're like most people and actually don't really like Sherry? Well, you see... (laughs) Sorry, we're getting into the hard part of this conversation right away. We're getting into a great part of, we're getting into a great conversation. My first question would be, why don't you like Sherry? I warned him, by the way, Zach, I just want to let you know that like I told Tim this was coming and I'm really glad you bought the, we brought the fire immediately. (laughs) I like Sherry fine, but I also know that like most people at a minimum, like the, the problem I think with, or not problem, the challenge with Sherry, I should say, is twofold. One is there's stylistically a broader range of sherries than people tend to imagine, which is maybe a compelling reason to go visit because you have a better chance to try many different sherries than you would, say, walking into a bar or restaurant somewhere in the U.S., even a sherry-focused place, which, you know, Adam and I have perhaps bemoaned the uh, proliferation of. But um, the there's also there's also the the reality that, you know, sherry in a in two different in different generations elicits different sort of um, ideas, you know, for an older generation, sherry is, you know, the cream sherry that, you know, Bristol's cream or whatever, that's sweet and syrupy and, you know, doesn't seem like something that anyone would travel to go enjoy. And for our generation, I'm not totally sure. I don't think sherry has an, a fixed idea in in our in our demographic in terms of like what it represents, which can be fun. It can be revelatory, but it's, it's hard to say like, you know, it's easy to say go visit a wine region with a more established um, image. So, so what is it about Sherry, I guess, and, and the Sherry Triangle specifically that, that you find so appealing? Well, so, I, I mean, one thing I'd just like to say there is like one, something you said kind of discredits your own question by saying Ooh. like, what if I don't like Sherry? But then you went on to say that Sherry is a broad range of categories of wine. So you can't just say like, 
I don't like sherry. That's like me saying, I don't like clear spirits. I mean, do I like mezcal, but I don't like tequila, for example, or, you know, vodka, gin. I'm not going to make such a sweeping statement. And, and so one of the reasons I'm saying this is such a great region to visit is that this is the most versatile style of wine out there. You know, you have Ooh. dry, complex whites, something which I believe in an earlier episode of this podcast, you yourself have championed. And it's mm -hmm. something which I champion as well. You know, the complex white blends. We've been talking before about the fact that maybe a Sauvignon Blanc, which is in your face, isn't to everyone's taste. And hardcore wine drinkers aren't really going to appreciate that. But for yourself, a complex white wine um, few things come close to that, especially in terms of like quality when you're buying it, ageability. So Sherry offers that, but at the same time, it also offers fuller bodied sweet styles. Um, you've got those oxidative notes that, again, I think many people that really love wine, or should I say people that have more experience drinking wine really appreciate that those kind of savory notes. And I think that it's that versatility that makes it so attractive and it's that's one of the reasons that i think yeah people will start to appreciate it more um you talk about the fact that these you know like the the, the cream sherries are something which i don't know maybe an older generation have enjoyed typically or we associate with the older generation i just like to say this we used to associate gin and tonics with the older generation now the older generation are the these guys are the og influencers these guys are leading the way so if they're drinking sherry Hey, we should be trying it as well. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I just want to jump in here because this is a podcast about travel destinations, not a defense of Sherry. I know that Tim has a lot of his barbs that he had planned prior because I had <laughs> warned him that there was going to be issue with the number one. That being said, uh, you, you know, we, we create this list based on also why we think something is current, right? Why it's important this year. Um, so Tim, if you could, I, I sort of, I wish you would talk a little bit about like why this year for Sherry, what makes, what's interesting about this region besides, because as a traveler, I like to travel to wine destinations, obviously, but I don't just want to go to producer visits. Like as a normal person, before I got into the world of wine, you know, my wife and I would travel we maybe check out one or two wineries, but then like, depending on where we are, we want to go for hikes. We want to go skiing. We want to go to the beach, et cetera. So what is there to do in this area of the world that's interesting besides sh tasting sherry, especially if I get there and like Zach said, you realize maybe you don't like it. <laughs> then like, what else am I going to do in this region of the world that makes it the number one spot? Yeah, you make a good point there. And um, unfortunately, I can be quite stubborn if I'm trying to defend something that I'm going to hold my corner. I think it's because I grew up with four other siblings. So, you know, that's ingrained in me. But um, no, look, this is a great region to visit. We're talking about the southwest corner of Spain, the Andalusia region. Um, we're talking about a region with 300 days of sunshine a year, close access to Seville, which is a great city as well. You know, I mean, Europe, um, for those that are American listeners that are fortunate enough to have visited Europe will know that it enjoys a great rail network. Traveling around is easy. So, I mean, if you're talking about building your vacation to Europe, maybe you don't in only need to stay in this region. But if you are staying in this region, what you're guaranteed of is great cuisine. Um, Iberico ham, for example, that's from Andalusia. And that's an absolutely amazing thing. Also, if you want to enjoy it with something, drink, enjoy it with sherry. Great pairing, by the way. You know, those things which grow together, go together, as we like to say in the hospitality industry. Um, and I think that apart from that, let's talk about culture. You've got flamenco. 
there's a lot going on there. And for nature lovers like Adam, who says him and Naomi, we maybe want to go out and enjoy the countryside. There's national parks there. There's a lot to do there. Excellent. And I definitely agree that like that part of Spain seems like an absolutely beautiful destination and, and excellent food. And, and Adam does bring up a good point. Obviously, even when you pick a wine region as a travel destination, um, those even those of us in the trade don't just go drink wine. We do a lot of that, but there's other things to do. And, and I'm actually really curious about this in the context of a couple of the other places you picked, because I really do think one thing that I that I appreciate about this list is, is it does seem like there's a really interesting mix of um, places to visit that are let's say, very wine country, fairly rural, where, you know, you're really either um, doing wine or you're out in nature. And then there's a few places like, you know, there's not a lot of Israel that I would describe as like, I mean, there's obviously desert, but probably not where you're going to go do a lot of like um, outdoor recreation. So, so you know, how do you kind of balance the the regions that are, you know, where, where really a lot of what there is to do is either, um, you know, wine or outdoor type activities versus places that are a little more not necessarily urban but but closer to that like israel or valet or whatever like that so i mean when we create this list there's a huge debate that happens in the office about you know not only obviously highlighting the the obvious wine regions but also wine regions we see as being up and coming but that also have uh, tourist hooks this year, right? So there's there's other regions to go besides the wine because again, as as you know, I was mentioning a little bit earlier in our in our great sherry debate, uh, you know, we want there to be other things to do. And so, for example, I think a really good you know point of this wouldn't actually be the Israel choice, but is the Elqui Valley in Chile. So you know, there's really great wine made in this valley. There's a lot of opportunities, but it's also one of the valleys in which uh, it's very easy to see to stargaze in one of the clearest you know places in the world and for the night sky and you know we're going to have a lunar eclipse this year and it's going to be very visible more visible in that area than anywhere else in the world so tying that region to both wine and you know a really amazing activity is what we try to do we also try to think about places that are we view as either up and coming or haven't gotten their due because again like when you i think one of the biggest things at least i i think of as a millennial and i'm sure tim can back me up is like i don't know when i travel at this point like yeah okay fine like i like paris is cool like I mean, London is fine. Tim's from London. Listen, listen to this. Um, this dude is like over Paris and no, London. No, okay. I'm not over them. But I think as a as a, a traveler, it is fun to go places where not look. Every place has been discovered. Right? I'm not trying to fucking you know be this person that's like, oh, I want to go somewhere that like no one's ever been before. But it's nice to go to a place where it doesn't feel as touristy. Where sure. there's still a lot of where the people are really thankful that you're there, that they're really excited for you to be there. So I mean that's why Israel's on the list. Um, you know the wine, the region, uh, the wine region of Israel is getting better and better. Uh, there's also obviously amazing things to do in the country, like Tel Aviv's an amazing city. Uh, you have the beaches, which are beautiful. And then you have this really amazing wine region that's making really great wine that isn't getting a lot of recognition while a lot of the other regions around it are. And mm-hmm. so that's one of the reasons that we we picked Israel because, you know, for whatever reason, it's not getting the recognition, whether you want to talk about politics or you want to talk about the fact that a lot I of don't wines, want to talk about politics exactly. if we can help or, it. Or, or you talk about the fact that like the wines are labeled as kosher. So they get put in, you know, a different wine section that people don't look at that often, like the region deserves attention, even though it's not getting it um, because those producers are making really great wines. And then, you know, part on top of the fact that like the country's really cool. And also the cuisine is having a massive moment. I mean, basically go 
go to almost any major city in the world and there's probably a pretty amazing Israeli restaurant. There's one of the best Israeli restaurants right now in the world in Paris. Uh, there's, uh, you know, Otto Lange's in London. You have Zahav. Places that you don't want to go. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Shut up, Zach. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like, <laughs> there's, there's cool things there. So that's, that's why Israel's there. I mean, uh, the, the biggest shock to me, to be honest with you, of everyone that was on the, the list, and, and I sort of was like, whoa, Tim, like big shocker here is Switzerland. Um, so I'm really, you know, like I, I'm, I thought that one was really interesting that that made it. So um, I've actually never had a, a Swiss wine before. Um, you know, so you, we had a conversation about it in the office as to why it wound up on the list. But, you know, instead of me rehashing that conversation, I'd rather, you know, Tim sort of chat about how Switzerland wound up on the list. I mean, yeah, you actually just said the re- the reason there yourself, Adam, um, the reason we included Switzerland on the, on the list this year is because, no one's really tried Swiss wine. I mean, a very, very high percentage of it. We're talking I high have, 90s. I have, just to say something. Oh, okay, Zach. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Wait, Zach's had Swiss wines and Swiss wines oh, yeah. and everyone's had... Oh, of course you have. It's my job, man. What can I tell <laughs> you? Were well, you going to tell me now that Chasselas is your favorite white variety? I'm a bigger fan of Petit Arvine, but sure. Oh, you would be, Zach. You would be. Hey, no, I think, you know I like savory whites. We just had this conversation five minutes ago. There you go. Fantastic. I like some of the fuller-bodied savory styles that are coming out of it. But like we said, you know, Switzerland is fantastic when it comes to hospitality. Um, the first time I went there was when I was 18. And immediately the first thing I realized was that an 18-year-old should not be traveling to Switzerland because it's fucking expensive. It's a really expensive country. And... The wines kind of live up to that reputation and the reputation of the Swiss as a whole. They're sort of, I don't know, they're, they're very well done. Everything's as it should be for maybe the varietals, but also they come with a hefty price tag. And that's the reason that a lot of them aren't leaving the country. And, you know, if we're talking about some of these grapes and the other regions where they are grown, Pinot Noir, for example, you know, it makes some of the most celebrated wines in the world. Why not go and try them in another old world region that doesn't perhaps get as much attention? But one thing you know you're going to get while you're there is also an amazing hospitality experience just because of the Swiss themselves. It's true that um, I haven't spent any time in Switzerland. I've spent some time in the areas very near Switzerland. But the wines that I've had are are all as you said, sort of very well made. Some of them are really delicious. I, I have, you know, it's that it's a great place to go if you are willing to drop the the coin on it, and if you can afford to stay there, and if you can afford to buy the wine. You know, the food is very expensive. It's a, I mean, stunningly beautiful country from everything I've seen. Um, obviously, the Alps are uh, just breathtaking in many places, um, and I think it's a it's a great destination and i like that what i what i appreciate about being on this list is you know it's fun to have a few places where like yeah you know you kind of gotta you kind of gotta be willing to 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 spend for this because nothing in switzerland is cheap but if you are there and you can and you can um can swing it it's i I imagine a a beautiful place to visit and definitely like you said it's so hard to find those wines i mean even the the swiss wines i've tried are you know small quantity things that make it here that are um very expensive and and interesting and tasty but not something that are that are easy to come by unless you are um sort of weirdly obsessed with them in which case you can kind of get your hands on them so that that's really interesting to me i have i have another question which is out of the winer uh, regions on this list you know tim or adam or both of you 
what's the best one for for people who don't necessarily know stylistically what they like? Because I think like, you know, setting aside even Sherry, but like, you know, the Finger Lakes, beautiful. But, you know, if you're not into sort of like high acid Riesling, it's a hard wine region to go visit and say like, or even if you just don't know if that's what you like. So so which of these, uh, you know, sort of wine regions has the most sort of diversity of, of wine available uh, for people who maybe want to be able to try a lot of different things uh, and don't necessarily know uh, that they want to focus on a specific style or varietal? Um, so I'm going to jump in right here and I'm going to say that that would be Provence. So that made it to number three on the list. And that was in terms of, you know, the, the peg came of the rosé trend, which I think we can all agree shows no sign of slowing down. And we included that as, you know, it's the spiritual home of rosé. If you're going to spend time and summer drinking rosé by the pool, you might as well do it in the place where they make the best rosé in the world. But Nearby, you have great red wine producing regions. You know, you've got some of the the Appalachians within Provence producing great red wines. But then you've also got Languedoc, Roussillon, you know, the bigger area of southwest France, where I think you can find pretty much every French variety there. And those wines are going to be sort of rapid, widely accessible within Provence itself, within a city like Marseille as well, where you've got some of the, the region's bigger restaurants, you're going to be able to have a better selection. And as I mentioned in the article itself, if you're not drinking wine, then you should also be enjoying the local delicacy, which is pastis, which is absolutely delicious. So I think, you know, weirdly, the region here for me, besides Provence, that if you're if you're looking for like the most American experience, meaning you're looking for European varietals made in more of a new world style. I assume that's what you mean. Yeah, Zach, like just this idea of diversity. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, then it would be Israel, which is crazy. Uh, you're going to find mostly, you know, Merlot, Cabernet, Chardonnay, Zinfandel, Syrah, Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc. Like the wineries are making all of those varietals. Um, so it's going to at least be varietals that you know. Because every other region, you're right, is specific, but it's specific for a reason because I think there's something special about that specificity. There's this this beauty in the fact that, uh, you know, when you go to Macedonia and Greece, like you're going to have Xenomavro and you're going to have a wine that is similar to Nebbiolo. You may, you may fall in love with if you like Pinot Noir, you know, so that's why you go there and you get to have a wine that is just becoming super cool. Um, and you, you know, you get to be in the know and like, that's why we travel, right? We like to travel and tell other people, uh, these really cool places that they need to go next. Like that's, that's, that's sort of what I mean. Not no diss on Paris, but I do think like, you know, I'm, I'm going to hot take here. If you tell me your favorite destination is Paris, you're a basic, like you also like, you, you also <laughs> like pumpkin lattes and you know, and that's fine. Like I don't, or pumpkin beers. Exactly. Like I don't, again, I'm not trying to hate on basics, but like there are people out there that, that that's that's easy for them and that's that's cool but like when when you make a a list of of top destinations we're trying to push beyond that right we're trying to look for the places for the person that wants to say like oh man i was the first person in my group of friends to really check out mexico city and now everyone else is checking out mexico city and it's like now it was so 5 years ago so that's a lot of what we're also pushing for here the classic wine regions are classic wine regions for a reason um but like in these wine regions, you are going to step a little bit outside of your comfort zone. But that's the whole point of travel. I I couldn't say it better myself, man. Yeah, I think I, I think if I can just play devil's advocate for a second here as well, what I will say is that, you know, within the wine world, I don't think 
anyone saying you should go to this region because every single variety that it produces, it produces to the same standard. You know, talk about jack of all trades, master of none. That's why that's why regions are specific to specific like certain varieties. I think if you want to enjoy a wine vacation of that style, then yeah, what you're looking at are city breaks. You're looking at Paris. You're looking at arguably, I think, hot take here. London is better for drinking wine than Paris, but maybe that's because I'm British. Um, I think even Hong Kong would challenge Paris as well um, from my experience there. So, or, or New York itself. So I, I think that if that's what you're looking for, then maybe a city break Airbnb is more for you. Basically, moral of the story of this podcast, Paris, you've been put on fucking blast. Get your shit together. <laughs> There's better cities in Europe for drinking wine than you. You better fucking figure out what you're doing wrong because basically Tim said London is better and so is New York, and I agree. I'm going to put in a plug-in for uh, Rome and Budapest as great places to go drink wine um, and just great places to visit in Europe, but that's a whole other podcast. We'll get to that one some other time. Cool. Well, I mean, I think hopefully we've inspired people uh, who've been listening to the podcast besides our tomfoolery to, you know, travel to other destinations. You got something to add, Tim? Yeah, I got one last point to add. And that was I, I wanted to start with this, but I guess I'll finish with it. And that's just saying in general, like this is a list of the top 10 of the year, but we wouldn't want you to specifically only travel to these regions like wine travel in itself is amazing wine travel visiting regions is what gets people into learning about wine what gets people enjoying wine more maybe taking it slightly more seriously and ultimately with maybe you know um disregarding the pacific northwest most of these regions have fantastic climates. You're going to be guaranteed a great holiday. You know, the views are fantastic. Vineyards, food, you get everything. You get the whole package when you go on a, a wine uh, vacation. Oh, my God. I'm going to ignore that pointed dig because you Sorry. definitely have not spent much time here. It is significantly warmer than New York and, uh, you know, about uh, not nearly as humid that in the summer. So, so well, whatever, good. man. That was so you good. In, you in, <laughs> You enjoy your uh, rainy London and rainy and cold New York, and um, I'll be happy here in Seattle. It's okay. Look, I mean, Zach, you offended Tim. He was ready. He came He came with, like, knives out. He was ready to go. <laughs> but in all seriousness, yeah, I mean, wine travel is about the, the experimentation. It's about the journey. Uh, it's about, as Tim said, getting to know uh, – you know, the wines you love, discovering how the process, you know, works in the first place. Um, and it's also just like, you know, I got to say, like, every wine region I've been to, they're wine regions because people pretty much make wine in pretty gorgeous places. And usually what I love about wine travel is that it comes connected with pretty dope ass hotels and usually pretty good restaurants. Uh, it's nice that those three things usually go together. Um, in all the regions that we chose, there are great places to stay. There are great places to eat. Um, and there are amazing things to do. So, um, we're going to put the list, a link to the list of the 10 regions in the notes of this show. So make sure that you check that list out if you haven't already, um, and get out there and travel this year. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And Tim, thank you so much for being a guest again. Thanks for having me, guys. Next time we'll have you on to talk about an article and not just a list you created. Thanks, Zach, for that You know, <laughs> lovely. It uh, makes me feel like a thought we assigned in here in Vineberry HQ. Um, and yeah, Zach, I will talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to VinePair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Jewell. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grimmer. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.